Fundraising everywhere. 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 Hello, hello. Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. Over the next few episodes, we're taking a look at some of our favourite grants and major donor on-demand sessions in celebration of our Grants and Major Donors Conference on the 14th of December. If you'd like to join us at the conference, you can use the promo code FEPODCAST to get 50% off. Yep, just pop in FEPODCAST at checkout to get 50% off Grants and Major Donor Conference in December via our website. Now, without further ado, on to today's episode. Hi there, my name is Chipego and I'm the Membership Support Officer for Fundraising Everywhere. And we are joined today by Sophia Morrow, who is going to be talking with us on neurodiversity and intersectionality. Um, so welcome, Sophia. Thank you for joining us today. Um, and before we kick off, we always start with a very good icebreaker question so that the people can get to know know a bit about you. So um, we just wanted to ask you first, if you were to be an ice cream flavor, which one would you be and why? If I was an ice cream flavor, I'd hope I'd be salted caramel, partly because it's the best flavor. Um, but in reality, I'd probably be one of those like hybrid flavors that are made from other things like cookie dough or like what do they call like the swirl ones? Basically one of the swirl ones. Oh, the like, uh, what's it? Not raspberry ripple ones, but like one of those, um, what's it? The, with the caramel ones inside as well, like Swiss. I didn't know those swirl ones could have caramel in them. Yeah. <laughs> you can have any kind of ice cream. I think that's a good, you're a good shout because all the mixes of, in, of ice creams are really the best ones to be fair. Cause then you get a bit of everything. So yeah. Then you don't have to like wait up in line delaying things. Exactly. You can just have a bit of everything. Exactly. Exactly. I am all about, what's it? Which one is it that I'm over at the moment? Ben and Jerry's Netflix and chilled at the moment. It's got like your bit of cookie dough there. It's got your bit of peanut butter. It's got your bit of pretzel. So it's just, oh, wow. I'm a salt and sweet type of girl. <laughs> so I'm all over that. It's like pretzel. Pretzel in ice cream sounds incredible. It's I love amazing. It. Oh, it's too good. If you haven't tried it, I'm putting it out there to everybody. <laughs> Go and get you some and say sorry to your PTs for like myself who <laughs> will be upset about that. But yeah, yeah, so thank you, Sophia, for that. Thank you for joining us um, today. And I will hand over to you to introduce yourself to those that are listening. And yeah, what is it that you do, Sophia? Thank you, Chipego. Mm -hmm. um, so I am a full-time diversity, equity and inclusion consultant. I have about 12 years experience, or I guess it's 13 years now, we're entering 2024. Um, 13 years experience working across um, press, engagement, organizational change, human resources um, and campaigning and lobbying. So um, prior to opening up my own consultancy and running that full time, I was working as head of advocacy and communications at a children's charity. Before that, I was in public affairs and um, policy. And prior to that, I was like running advice clinics. So I've been very much like a charity sector 
um, person throughout my career for the most part, although I did have um, periods where I was part-time in journalism and such as well. And now I spend most of my days as a trainer, auditor, um, interim leader, supporting organizations to become more inclusive and intersectional. Wow, nice. You've been busy. (laughs) You've been very busy. That's awesome. How did you kind of find yourself in this line of work? What's kept you in the charity sector for so long? So I found myself in this line of work initially because I knew what areas I was passionate about. So I was passionate about social justice and human rights. Um, And then I just kind of viewed the different careers I was looking at as different avenues to get there. I think initially I started out in anti-trafficking research and I thought like, okay, definitely like research and um, investigative journalism is going to be my jam. And then I realized I didn't necessarily like academic research, but I did like like frontline intelligence gathering um, and trying to use that for influencing. And even though I didn't have the vocabulary yet, I later on realized that that would kind of feed into advocacy a little bit more. Um, I don't even know if we called it advocacy at the time. Um, And I did enter into journalism, but I realized I also am interested in the doing and not solely the telling of the story. So I knew that journalism wouldn't necessarily be a full-time job for me. I did freelance with the BBC Investigations Journalism Department for a while. Um, However, also I was a new mother at the time. So freelance journalism wasn't necessarily, at that time especially, Um, hospitable to the responsibilities I had but it also wasn't meeting all of my needs so again even though I didn't have the vocabulary for it at the time I think I was kind of inching towards a portfolio career and within that it was clear quite early on probably in um, so early on in my work cycle would have been the early 2010s that I always wanted to have the charity sector and charity work as part of my portfolio And until um, probably about end of 2022, um, most of my employment was within the charity sector. In honesty, currently, a lot of my work still is in the charity sector. Most of my time still is. It's just I'm not employed by a charity uh, charity organization. I'm employed by myself. Oh, wow. Cool. That's awesome. And it's really nice to hear your um, your journey as well. Like, even though you didn't feel like you had the vocabulary and stuff, you just followed your passion and your dream and you, you've developed in that role um, as the years have gone on and stuff to bring you to where you are today. So that's fantastic. That was inspiring even for me. I was like, oh, that's so nice. Like, I don't need to know everything. It's fine. <laughs> just like learn as I go. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. So I guess we are here to yeah talk about you know neurodiversity and intersectionality. So just for those listening, um, could we define like what exactly is it that you mean when you um, say neurodiversity and intersectionality, and and why is it an important, relevant topic to be discussing for organisations within the sector to embrace in their teams and in the culture? Um, so I'll start with intersectionality. So intersectionality is essentially. Um, Inter, um, intersecting structures of oppression or inequality. So the term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw um, and it essentially um, originally was referring specifically to black women's experiences. So as a black woman, I am a black woman. In case anyone listening hasn't um, seen um, faces attached to names, I am a black woman. Um, and um, black women are facing not solely sexism and misogyny and affected um, within the patriarchal structures. We're also facing racism. We're operating um, in societies that are white supremacist. We're also affected by um, contexts such as colonialism and such. 
And that means that our experiences are unique because we're navigating intersecting structures of inequality. Um, so that means that our perspectives need to be considered in those different movements that are trying to address those different struggles. Otherwise, our voices are not considered and the solutions also will not consider us. We can become completely left behind and invisible within that process. And um, to define neurodiversity, so neurodiversity essentially refers to conditions such as um, attention hyperdeficit disorder, um, autism spectrum um, conditions, um, dyslexia. There are many other conditions, but those are some of the most well-known ones. That essentially talks about um, different ways of being, of thinking, and those could be considered disabilities depending on how they impact a person's access to society um, and the barriers that they're facing. But it can also be considered just different ways of being, and it's not automatically um, an impairment or a deficit um, or even a disadvantage. It's usually the inaccessibility of society that creates um, the experience of being disabled. So I'm also using, just to define another term, the social model of disability, which is the idea that it's not the person's inherent um, impairments, in quotes, that are the factor that's disabling them. It's the inequitable structures of society, um, things such as a lack of ramps. It's not the fact that a person um, needs to use a wheelchair, it's the fact that a train station is not wheelchair accessible. That is the disabling factor. It's who are things built for, essentially. Um, so today we're going to be looking at neurodiversity and intersectionality. That is really good. You define that so well. <laughs> You're very well at, uh, well spoken with that. So thank you very much for um, explaining that to um, our listeners. And um, how do you feel the sector is dealing with intersectionality and neurodiversity at the moment? Like, uh, how has your experience been of it so far? Well, I'm somewhat biased because diversity, equity, justice and inclusion consulting um, and also quite a bit of um, legal related work in terms of employment tribunals is the majority of the work that I do. So I'll say I tend to see the business end of things, usually when things have gone wrong and they need to be fixed. Or alternatively, I will see some of the most progressive examples of organisations that want to be ahead of the curve and trying to make um, their workplace the most inclusive environment possible. So I tend to either get um, brought into environments where I'm investigating complaints um, or I'm the point of contact for an appeal. So if they want a further, more thorough look at the point of appeal um, or I might be brought in to provide a training or um, some coaching after discrimination has transpired or I may be supporting organisations to set things up so that none of that happens. So I will say perhaps my sample size is not necessarily representative However, generally speaking, I will say that the sector is particularly behind in terms of neurodiversity and intersectionality, which is interesting because the sector, the charity sector can be considered in many ways like a formalization of social movements, including some of the movements that will be charging ahead with progress that the rest of society um, eventually adapts to. So many of the conversations happening today about um, equality um, and progress and social justice, people in the charity sector may have been speaking about those same um, core points um, or ideas 10, 15 years prior. So sometimes we will be ahead, particularly in our vocabulary and such. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that as a sector, particularly as an employer, that 
the charity sector is any different than any other type of organisational sector. If anything, it can mean that the charity sector falls into complacency about the work that we need to do to put our own houses in order because we think, of course not us. We're the do-gooders. How could it be us that's getting it wrong? Or um, a little bit more of a cynical approach sometimes is, even if we're getting it wrong, we're doing it for the right reasons. Look at our services, look at the impacts that we're having, look at the change we're trying to create. So surely us making some bumps and mistakes along the way is justifiable. And I think that's called the noble cause fallacy. So I would say because of that, the charity sector faces additional barriers that are sometimes, sometimes they're psychological barriers, particularly in leadership. And with um, intersectionality in particular, the leadership crisis in the charity sector and I like leadership representation crisis, but that also bleeds into leadership cultural crisis means that there really is a lack of representation. So intersectionality just becomes a word. It's something that the sector refers to. It's an ideal that's referenced. It's not experiences that are considered. It's not policies that are equality impact assessed and incorporated. It's certainly not culture change and it's not having any material impacts in the way that we do things. So for example, um, just until about 2018, just 3% of nonprofit leaders were not white. And I'm specifically saying not white because that doesn't even say within that um, which um, racially minoritized group people were part of. That did increase to about, I think, 6% um, just a few years later. So that did double, but still. Um, that is three to then eventually 6%. And if we look at nonprofit boards, which is where the buck stops, because really we do not have a regulator in the nonprofit sector um, that would be interventionist in the event that things went wrong. Um, primarily when things go wrong in terms of discrimination, in terms of racism, in terms of disability discrimination, um, sexism, you name it, it would be employment tribunals if it's individual experiences and perhaps things would be hashed out in the press. Sometimes if it is large scale in terms of volume of people affected, then maybe there would be some regulatory action. Um, but that's very, very, very uncommon, unfortunately. Um, I feel like you're more likely to get consequences in the nonprofit sector regulation if there's some the financial issue rather than a human issue, so to speak, which is unfortunate and it shows where our priorities lie. Um, and essentially on boards, 92% of board members um, in charities are white. That rises to 99% in grant-making trusts and foundations. So pretty much anywhere that a charity has applied to for a grant that is another charity, it's likely that they had 100% white board. Um, we don't even take statistics on the number of disabled people on boards. Um, so that means we also don't have statistics on the number of um, neurodiverse people on boards. Two thirds of board members are men. And 75% um, of board members have a higher than national median income, which is interesting because the majority of board members are retired. So even their pensions are higher than the national average income. So when we're looking at it in that context, I also would suggest considering that most bullying and certainly almost all discrimination transpires from people who are most more senior to you. So I believe the last research I saw said that bullying um, happens from someone more senior two thirds of the time. The more senior you get in a charity, the more likely you are, if you are from an underrepresented and marginalised group, that the person will not be from the same background. So even some of what we're considering to be standard bullying 
or exclusion or bad practice or toxic workplaces is happening across power structures that are not limited to the hierarchy of professional role, it will also extend to other structures of inequality. So because of these factors, there is a leadership crisis in the nonprofit sector. And that leadership crisis is pretty aligned to intersecting structures of oppression. And when we consider neurodiversity, a lot of neurodiversity um, symptoms, or I should say traits, because symptoms makes it so medicalized, but traits. So for example, um, with autism, that can have so many different presentations, but some of the more well-known ones are, for example, um, perhaps more literal communications, needing more um, explicitness rather than being led by um, or communicated through implications, being expected to um, guess the subtleties and question the actual content of what someone's saying. Um, or um, with ADHD, it may be, um, for example, um, needing additional time with tasks that require focus. It may be perhaps not thriving in an open place workplace because you can hear all that different like noise pollution happening right around you, in which case someone with ADHD may perhaps benefit from remote work opportunities, access to meeting rooms, access to working from home, um, particularly if there are things such as deadlines applicable or the need for focused work that doesn't necessarily um, solely involve collaboration with other people. So um, the traits of neurodiversity can sometimes un, um, will often require different ways of working. Sometimes the adjustments will not be um, straightforward in terms of like, okay, here's a magic pill, here's an action we can do, here's some box that we can tick. It might be day-to-day -day changes in how managers, people around you, et cetera, relate to you or communicate with you or in how your performance or um, presentation is assessed. So for example, a lot of how job descriptions are described will be inherently ableist and disadvantaging people from neurodiverse backgrounds. It will be, for example, putting um, able to multitask effectively, able to work in a fast paced environment. So able to multitask effectively for one, science has shown that generally the mind cannot actually multitask. All we can do is prioritize at a given time. And it's about how we manage and transition between the different prioritization. If you have certain um, neurodiverse conditions, particularly the ones that have information processing symptoms, switching modes like that and flitting between different priorities is actually not one, it's not very effective, even if you're not neurodiverse. Um, one thing at a time tends to be more effective. But if you are neurodiverse, particularly if you have conditions like ADHD or dyslexia, for example, and dyslexia, shock horror, is not solely limited to reading and writing, it's also an information processing condition. That can mean that Multitasking is more difficult. If you're hit with contrasting and perhaps contradicting priorities, you may be um, temporarily in that context less able to perform in a way that's reflective of your ability. And in those conditions, that person can be assessed poorly, particularly if it's without context, without consideration, without adaption. And if we look at some of the ways in which we decide that someone should get a promotion, who we end up advocating for to get a role, the different things that we have in recruitment processes like time tasks, so much of the way that we do things by default in this sector is discriminatory. I would say it is discriminatory. And sometimes I will see, because I do work with clients outside of the charity sector sometimes, the charity sector will sometimes be the most resistant to changing these things, which is really interesting because we see it as justifiable. We see it as we need X, Y, and Z to meet the purposes of our cause, or we have to do it this way 
because this is how our organisation has to function. So in some ways, the charity sector has a bit more small C conservatism. I've seen more progress from startups in the tech industry than I have from most charities. That is wild. That's really interesting, like, you know, to put it that way, because even when you, you mentioned that earlier, I was thinking, yeah, we, you know, charities generally tend to be out there for the the cause that is that needs the help that needs the support that the beneficiaries that are struggling and stuff like that but yet we don't reflect how we are trying to treat the cause and what we're after in the same way as what we like for our own workplace than what we do for those that we're trying to benefit that's that's crazy (laughs) it's actually it's it's a very interesting and very I think quite true point, actually, when you when you say it like that, I was thinking about that. And I was like, yeah, to be fair, makes makes a lot of sense. So have you found that you've um, encountered a lot of you know resistance at times when you've been trying to advocate for that and stuff? Like what have been the main challenges that you have um, encountered um, in your work? And how have you tried to address some of these challenges when you when you see them? And without dropping names, obviously, but like, yeah, what's kind of some of the big hitbacks and stuff that you've got like maybe from boards and things like that that you mentioned before and stuff like that thank you that's a really excellent question and i'll start by saying there's no point in even saying names because it's that widespread it is so widespread and as someone that's like i do a lot of pro bono work with victims of discrimination um, I shouldn't say victims, with people who face discrimination because all of us will be um, at risk. If you're from a marginalised background, even if it's not some of the explicit stuff, you're likely, unfortunately, to face it in this sector, whether you are aware of it or not. Um, and some of the common issues I will see is that with neurodiversity in particular, a lot of it, a lot of its presentation is what uninformed people will consider to be personality. So, for example, if you saw that someone um, was given feedback in a probation review that they are a bit abrupt and direct in their communications, that they sometimes lack tact, that they've displayed poor timekeeping, and that they appear to be disorganised, and lack attention to detail. These might be used as grounds not to pass that person in probation. However, what I've just described to you is some of the literal diagnostic criteria of not even just one condition, unfortunately. So some of the things that are literally used by medical professionals as one of the considerations within a framework to diagnose a condition will be used against people in being selected for roles, losing the roles that they have, being denied promotions, being denied pay rises. And what we need to also consider is like, a common issue I see is that neurodiverse people are made to be unsafe. Their psychological safety is actively undermined and their confidence is eroded. And that will also change how a person presents. Um, Because research has shown that victims of discrimination in general will sometimes um, experience like cognitive cognitive effects from like the pure stress of discrimination because it is a cause of stress and there's a lot of information out there on the effects of stress so when you're extremely stressed particularly with something that's like a trauma and um your identity being under attack 
and being systemically excluded is a form of trauma, even if it is the supposedly minor and everyday's presentation that takes. It can lead to your focus going. It can lead to you perhaps making more mistakes, to you perhaps saying the wrong things, stumbling over your words, because it will erode a little bit your psychological faculties. Your mind is preoccupied. It's got more in it at a given time because of what you're going through. And then that can also be used as fuel to fire. Um, and psychological safety is a really important one to look at because that's the one that I'd say leaders in particular, but also colleagues and peers in an environment will have such a big input on. And that's the part where neurodiverse people in the charity sector can often become casualties because it becomes a hostile environment very quickly. So for context, psychological safety um, is essentially that ingredient that's essential for collaboration, for learning, um, for participation. So whether you feel like comfortable, like making contributions in a meeting, knowing that they'll be received well, whether you feel comfortable asking questions, making mistakes, um, learning how to do something, growing, whether also challenger safety. And I don't just mean challenge in terms of um, conflict, standing up for yourself. I also mean challenge in terms of debate, throwing an idea out there that maybe differs from others in the room, but could end up being exactly what you need for that strategy. Um, and also just inclusion safety, where you know that you're welcomed, that you can bring your full self to work, that you are wanted in an environment and that you're valued there. And when you don't have psychological safety, when you are made to be psychologically unsafe, that is going to show itself in terms of people participating lists in meetings, people perhaps not framing and verbalizing their thoughts in a way that is confident and presents them as intended. Um, people not putting themselves forward for things, people wanting to be less visible and perhaps just withdrawing a little bit. And then how will that look and then be used against them? It's another means then. The consequences of someone being psychologically unsafe is then used at times as grounds to exclude them from an environment. And it's something that even I faced um, as um, I was at the time in a leadership position as a neurodiverse woman, I have ADHD. Um, and I also have chronic health conditions. And it's not uncommon for people who have one condition, whether that's neurodiversity or others, to also have other conditions. Um, it's called com comorbidities, and that's very common. Um, so at times, particularly if a meeting is very, very long, I might need to switch off my camera. Or um, if, for example, it's something that has like quite a routine agenda and the meeting is becoming like two hours, for example, then um, it can be helpful for us to have rest breaks, to switch off camera, etc. And then um, I was in a leadership role and then I was told that I was not integrating because my camera was off. And the only way that I was actually able to challenge that is that I realized back when I was being onboarded, I did actually disclose this and I explained like, I'm gonna need some adjustments. So this is how some of that might look. And thank goodness, I had some form of legal training and I'd been a diversity and cons inclusion consultant for years at this point. But um, at this point, then each time I'd ask, like, what do you mean? I'm not inter um, integrating. Can you please define this for me? The only example that was used was one that related to an adjustment for my condition. And then as a solution, I thought, OK, well, we need to get disability awareness training clearly. And I'd recommend that it covers these areas because it's clear that that's what this is really coming from. There's a lack of understanding of the difference I have to others in the leadership team. And this is not actually being considered, even though I did my duty and disclosed. And then the, the response to that was, yes, but our HR department's under pressure right now because we've got like other things to deal with. So can you do some training for us? So I was asked to effectively do pro bono training on top of my day job to train my colleagues 
in making adjustments for me that didn't even require doing anything. If that's something that's happening to someone who's actually worked in employment tribunals before, who has done a lot of work on the Equality Act and the legal protections we have, um, who's a consultant in the non-profit sector, who's written guidance and things like that, then what's happening to the people that perhaps you're not born with this information, you come across it in some way. And that was a bit of like an eye-opener for me because what, how would I have responded to that if perhaps I was recently diagnosed and maybe I didn't even have like the knowledge of what my condition fell under? Because you're actually protected from the point when you have the symptoms. If you have a condition that um, has lasted or may last 12 months, even if you don't have the diagnosis, but you have the symptoms, you've gone to a doctor, et cetera, you're legally protected from that point. And a lot of the charity sector employers seem to think that it's only when you have a name for it that you are, which is not true. And it really concerns me in terms of staff with precarious contracts, in terms of junior staff, in terms of people who have like less power in a context, because this is really about power. So I think having been um, victimized in that context where I did on paper at least have some power showed me about, um, showed me, I suppose, how vulnerable you can still be made even when you tick the boxes of what you're supposed to do to be protected. Which is why I really feel like neurodiversity and disability justice more generally is the area perhaps, or one of the areas in which we have the least progress. And I mention intersectionality specifically because if you're neurodiverse and particularly if you're not racialized as white, how you're perceived is gonna be completely different because that extends to who we humanize, who we have empathy for, and who we see ourselves in. And so much of neurodiversity related discrimination is thinking that it's an inconvenience or that those are personality traits or why don't they just do this? Why are they being difficult? Oh my goodness me. That is, it's interesting to even hear your story on that. And I feel like there's a lot that's going on there for like, in terms of the role that leadership does play in this, like it's, is starting from the board up and stuff like you're saying, like, you know, they they have such an impact or an influence because that was just fortunate that it happened to someone like you who was able to have the know-how to to back yourself up and even say it right at the beginning. Um, whereas the next person who perhaps didn't have that knowledge or didn't happen to mention some adjustment like that would then be in a place where they're like, ah, what do I do now? And it's like, I think that's, that's quite... Um, interesting to, to like even the, the perception of like you know you have to have a, a label on it as defined by a medical practice that okay this is what you have before you can then have any kind of support or, or any or anything kind of thing and then to ask you to then divide provide the training that was that was I was just like wow okay that's that's really interesting like I think there's there's a lot to be said there for leadership and stuff which actually I mean, this was probably going to be my last question, but I think it's more relevant now is just to find out, like, what are the practical ways that, you know, um, people can do something about this from, like, leadership level roles and stuff? What are kind of the things that they can start to implement? But also, how about for those people in your entry or more junior level places um, and positions? Um, what is there anything that they can do on their end as well to help try and bring about a bit of more inclusive culture and understanding and learning and awareness? Absolutely. Those are really excellent questions. I'm going to try and answer them one by one, but 
please absolutely like jump in and we can go to the different aspects of that question together. <laughs> I shoved them all at you so sorry (laughs) I shoved a lot of answers at you at one go so please don't worry it's safe Um, I'd say what we can do is on a practical level start with the earliest stages of dehumanization which is the everyday presentation of ableism Um, so for example suss out the different standards you have for what is acceptable and who is an acceptable casualty so for example whenever we're changing um whenever we're changing like digital systems that we're using or administrative systems often when like charities or organizations are growing from small to large sometimes we think okay now we need to bring in a whole bunch of template processes and implement them or being official means we do a million forms I think I've seen that times and times. I don't know if that's a usual experience, but I've seen that lots of times. And that directly means like whenever you create an administrative burden, you're more likely to be disadvantaging neurodiverse people, especially if you don't have like some type of safeguard or safety net where, okay, if this is challenging, what are the alternatives that we can find and implement? Um, So in some previous roles I've had, like um, timesheets could be really, really, really challenging um, because segmenting and um, segmenting time and how it's being spent and managing in that way is a different way of thinking through things. Um, And filling in forms can sometimes be the reason why um, people will not do things on time as well. So looking at what's actually supporting organizational efficiency and building your structures to that, rather than doing what you think is the default and what you're supposed to do. So much of what we think makes our lives easier as organizations and as individual leaders as well, are the things that have just been done before or that we've seen done in other contexts, usually inequitable contexts. Because when you're using the benchmarking, quote unquote, from other environments, it's usually not the progressive examples that you're benchmarking against. You're just benchmarking against usual practice. And if we accept that discrimination is systemic, then by definition, you're reproducing unequal structures and setups. And that's not what you want to do when you're expanding or you're creating something or you're rebuilding something, you're fixing something. That's an um, opportunity to have some real aspiration and not have a baseline that's what everyone else has been doing. Usually what everyone else has been trying to reform away from. So looking at the default actions that you're doing, such as are you creating an administrative burden in forms and such, Um, looking at whether, um, making sure that you do cultural check-ins. So seeing how things are actually doing rather than assuming. And certainly when you do certain um, surveys, for example, like a cultural staff survey or an annual um, reflection survey, whatever it is, when you're doing that annual questionnaire or six monthly questionnaire, make sure you're actually taking equality monitoring figures because otherwise you're going to think that everything is going 90% excellent when in reality that feedback is only from the people that are not affected by the thing you're asking about and you have no breakdown as to whether there's a big disparity in how people from different groups are perceiving the same situation and setups. Um, So it's really important that you're able to capture that data and segment findings by it. Um, And I would say, um, let me just go back to the question. Um, And practical ways that people from entry level through leadership level roles can do to implement um, changes is one awareness. It's so, so, so important that we raise awareness. And I'm not saying this because I'm a trainer, but I have to say um, training on its own is not the solution, but training paired with reflection as an organization because you can give someone the best training in the world 
And it's worth absolutely nothing if they're not actively listening, engaging in the context and reflecting on it. And if the organisation isn't applying those learnings and embedding it into the organisation, the way it works, revisiting them, making sure it's part of the culture, um, the values and the setup of the organisation, the way it works. Because otherwise you're just having people there for a day or a half day or a couple of hours and it's not lasting change. So awareness raising and revisiting that awareness because you don't just learn something when you read it once or you hear it once it needs to become embedded so embedding those changes actually trying to change the way you think about things because so much of why ableism succeeds is because we're not actually reflecting on what we think about and why and it's something I've had to look at for myself um, so people with intellectual disabilities for example um a lot of concern has come from that community and is regularly ignored around how much ableist language is in our daily speech. So stupid as an insult, um, idiocy, questioning um, intelligence is like the ultimate thing that you can say to someone, the ultimate negative feedback, etc. when that is generally something completely beyond someone's control. And also, again, that's often um, an aspect of diagnostic criteria in relation to medical conditions. Um, and quite a lot of what will be leveraged against neurodiverse people, even if it's not with people with intellectual disabilities, is questioning the capability, the potential, the intelligence, quote unquote, of people with neurodiverse conditions because of how their conditions present. And that can also create such stigma that there's a real barrier to disclosure. So one practical thing that can be done is don't have the benchmark for considering neurodiversity, its presentation, its impacts and the needs arising from it, be someone disclosing to you that they have a neurodiverse condition. One, because it's so extremely underdiagnosed. Two, because disclosure can mean that someone thinks that they're really risking how you perceive them, whether they will be actively discriminated against or even if they'll just be perceived differently which is very valid and evidence-based concerns because our, our perceptions of people will shift because of the power of stigma. Um, so trying to have it built as a preventative step into your structures and into your considerations, like have a look at whether the metrics and the indicators that you're using for success, um, for consideration, the adaptions you're willing to make, are they inclusive? Are you offering that as the default? If someone asks for extra time in um, a timed exercise, if you're doing those in interviews, are you going to ask them to give you medical evidence? Um, think about things like that and don't require that people disclose, but also create a safe environment for people to disclose. Show that you are you have a positive perspective, that you don't have a deficit model, that you're not looking at it in terms of its deficits. Um, make it clear that when you ask if there are any support needs um, or anything you should be aware of, that you're asking in good faith. And where possible, present evidence of this. If you've done a recent... Um, staff survey and you know what um, the population in your organization currently is, if you know you want to address that area of underrepresentation, put that into the recruitment materials, the recruitment pack, say that you're proud that X percent of your um, workplace is from this group, but that you recognize this unrepresentative and that you'd really love to increase representation from this community. How you communicate, hopefully authentically, please do not bait and switch people, um, how you communicate can say a lot about the intention of why you're asking people to share parts of their identity with you. And something that leaders and managers in particular can do is, um, and also just colleagues, is try to build that psychological safety. Pay attention to who is being excluded. Um, 
pay attention to who isn't participating, who hasn't been putting forward ideas and such. And when you're using, um, when you're developing like metrics, formal, written, un unwritten, informal, consider whether who's had the opportunity to display those things and who hasn't. And yes, that will affect neurodiverse people. It will also affect people from other marginalized groups. Because sometimes people will withdraw into their shells or think that their contributions are not valuable, that there's no point in saying it, that it would only be taken seriously if so-and-so from that team said it, because they are from groups that are not valued. So one, value those groups, present evidence that you're valuing those groups. Don't just say it in words, show it in actions, in changes, in policies, in structures, in ways of working. And when you get feedback, act on it. So if you get feedback, for example, that there are too many of those routine staff meetings and that the agenda is not productive, then maybe review, is it more useful to have like team specific meetings? If you want to have an all staff catch up, then maybe have a look at a shorter agenda, maybe give an opportunity for people to feed into the agenda, um, maybe create some type of provision where you regularly review how it's working and who it's working for. Because otherwise, if you're soliciting feedback and then doing nothing with it, it makes people feel that there's no reason really for them to be engaging, that it's not being done in good faith. Um, and when things go wrong, mistakes will be made, don't go with them. Don't go down the avenue of defensiveness and vilification. Um, Recognise that you're human too. And also what matters more sometimes is showing growth, showing learning and trying to put it right and putting it right on the terms of the affected. Um, and just recognize the emotional tax. So there is a lot of research on the emotional tax. Um, it's primarily done in terms of um, people of color, um, racial minorities and um, women. However, it is likely that is also applicable to other groups. Just a lot of DEI research is done on women and racially minoritized people. And the emotional tax is essentially the heightened experience of being treated differently to your peers, being on guard to protect against bias and the adverse effects and risks to employee health, well-being and productivity and all the ways that, that can show itself. So every single leader, every single manager and every single board member should be aware of that and should be considering that in the way that they set up the structures of the organisation. If it's not embedded, it's not effective. That's really good. That is really helpful and it's really practical ways um, that people can um, implement things in their workplaces. So really appreciate that um, detail, Sophia. It was really, really good. Um, and to be honest, I think you pretty much did answer <laughs> the last question that I had for you. But um, if there's anything else that comes up for you, it was just around, yeah, how um, workplaces in the sector can really like evaluate the things that they implement and stuff. But I know you've mentioned, you know, stuff around, you know, your feedback and making sure that it's representative of your, the workplace that you're actually receiving the feedback from. So it's giving and actually acting upon it, reflecting back and looking um, after you've done these trainings and tried to implement new processes and stuff, actually, you know, re reassessing and checking that it's still um, right and meets the needs of the workplace and the, and the community that you're trying to serve. Is there any other ways that, um, are used and for indicators or metrics to to kind of make sure that they're on track? I'd say um, there are a few easy wins in terms of changes that can be made to create a more inclusive environment in terms of neurodiversity. So one is don't treat the recruitment course um, process as an obstacle course, for example, trick questions, elaborate presentations, etc. 
Two is don't have a simplistic idea of flexible working. So sometimes we think that flexible working just means working from home. It's a very pandemic idea as well. Like we let people work from home, that's flexible working. But no, flexible working means a whole lot of other things. So for example, my preferred um, format of flexible working is remote working, but it's also um, flexi time. So that means, for example, um, it's very common for people with like ADHD, which I have, I have inattentive format ADHD. Um, it's very common for us to have periods where we actually have hyper-focus. So it doesn't just mean the condition is you don't focus. It can also mean you have hyper-focus. And in those periods, I can get about like two weeks worth of work done in like a four hour period. So it really helps when that four hour period could come at about, let's say, 6 p.m., in which case I might want to write that report that is due um, a few weeks from now in that time. That's and when then, I'll receive all your emails. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, in which case then, do you then expect that the person who um, needs perhaps flexi time as an adjustment, but their workplace says, nope, our core hours are nine to five, or you can have some flexibility, but you should be available between 10 and two. In which case that person's either going to work way over hours or they're going to try and work within the hours that work for you, but probably be a little bit less efficient or a lot less efficient because they're trying to work within the structure that you've created rather than perhaps serving the aims of their role in just a way that requires some adaptation. So there might be days when I will do in about three days, um, five or six days of work and then claim that time back as toil, in which case an adjustment in that context would be um, preferably having a toil policy that takes that into account. And a compromise in that context may be, OK, you discuss with your line manager when you can claim back that time. Um, and um, so having a broader idea about flexible working, because if you look at it, there's like the ACAS website that has different examples. There are annualized hours. There's flexi time. There's amended start and finish times. There's remote working. There's home working. There's so many different things. So have like a clear idea of what flexible working is and make sure that it's applied in practice. Because if you're saying you offer flexible working, but you're penalizing people by, for example, not changing your expectations. So if someone maybe makes a request to change and switch to part-time hours, but you still expect them to be completing things in a time scale as though they were a full-time employee, which is very common, then it's flexible working only in name. It's supportive working practices only in name because your expectations of people haven't changed. Um, failing to give information in advance. So this doesn't just affect neurodiversity, it also affects people with certain mental health conditions, um, particularly anxiety and such. So if, for example, you have like a one-to-one -one or um, sometimes even interviews as well, key meetings, sending over at least like headline contents at the very least is really important. If you have big questions that require like a lot of information processing, you can't necessarily always predict them. But if you can, then you can send it to them so that they can have a think of it beforehand. Rather than, for example, um, I've seen people in meetings like respond with just like mumbles or like be a little bit like caught off guard. And that can even cause embarrassment for them or lead to their competency being questioned when maybe they just needed a little bit of forewarning so they could organize their thoughts. This could particularly affect people if they're having meetings at times of day that they're not actually um, able to work at that sort of time. So some people will be unable to do meetings in the morning. Some people will be unable to do meetings on a Friday afternoon. And if you for business reasons, cannot avoid them doing that in those time. At the very least, make adaptions to make it possible for them, to make them be able to get through those in one piece. Um, another easy win is take a look at whether you have invisible objectives. So when you're doing um, recruitment rounds 
or probation objectives or promotion um, aims and appraisals annually or what have you. Are you actually sticking with the criteria? Have you even thought about your criteria? Or are you rewarding things or penalizing things that are really quite vague and maybe just biased? Are you rewarding like people who remind you of yourself, people that you just click with? Are you recruiting for fits? Um, are you rewarding things that, for example, like is your concept of a team player actually based on the dynamics that are possible in an equitable team? Or are you penalizing people for perhaps social communication barriers that are arising from an autism um, disorder? And have you made no effort to support with that, to make sure that they're still able to be part of the working environment? So have a look at whether you're, um, um, whether you're adhering to invisible objectives, measuring people against them, applying them, and whether those invisible objectives or explicit objectives are discriminatory. Um, networking solely over drinks or physically challenging activities. So um, events with alcohol don't solely disadvantage people from different, um, different religious backgrounds or people who are perhaps um, overcoming addiction. They also disadvantage people who are on certain medications. So certain medications for mental health conditions, for physical conditions, and also for like neurodiverse conditions. Um, so for example, like um, some ADHD medication, you can't have alcohol with those. Um, quite a lot of depression medication, for example, you can't necessarily have alcohol with those. So when you're having events in an alcohol context, and people may perhaps know that their colleague doesn't have a religious barrier to having alcohol, it puts those colleagues in a difficult position, and they may be getting that well-being, well-meaning pressure like, oh, come on, let me get you a real drink, which is so widespread. So that's another reason not to network solely over drinks, neurodiversity. Um, and expecting assimilation. So very often I'll see in job um, descriptions, we are an outgoing friendly team and expect you to be the same. Sometimes that will be for condition, uh, for roles, sorry, not conditions, for roles that have absolutely nothing to do with a public facing role or anything. It could be payroll administrator and it will say, we expect you to be outgoing. What does that have to do with anything? And who is disadvantaged by that? So really question those things that are the default. Those are some easy places to start and try and suss it out. And also train staff, trustees and volunteers. Don't wait until things have gone wrong to do that. And I would also say that's not a nice to have or a good preventative step. If you look up the case of Yasmin Omar versus Brampton Manor, it's on the Employment Tribunal website, um, them having failed to train the manager of a newly qualified teacher who um, ended up being diagnosed with MS, ended up being one of the reasons why they lost an employment tribunal case and were held accountable for disability discrimination. So failing to train up a manager or a person with power who ends up discriminating against someone can get the organization in hot water. And that doesn't just disadvantage that manager or that leader. It's actually organizations that receive responsibility for that. And which brings me to the last point, confidentiality. There is no right to share someone's medical information, someone's health information, even if it's to contextualize or like share, oh yeah, so-and-so, um, they get like an iPad because they need that for this condition. When you're trying to explain to another staff member why you gave them X, Y, and Z. You don't need to share any information about someone's reasonable adjustments with another person, certainly not without their consent. Um, and you certainly shouldn't be discussing someone's medical information, partly because it's illegal, but also because it's immoral. Um, so keep that in mind as well, because if a data breach happens, and that is a data breach, and that's quite a serious data breach, it's the organisation that's responsible, not just the person.
That is really very informative. Thank you so much, Sophia, for for all of the and the answers to your questions. Like I've learned so much <laughs> in this time that we've had together, and it's just been really helpful. And um, and yeah, it's just even like just as you spoke through loads of different things, it just kind of crossed my mind various kinds of kinds of ways in which I have maybe encountered it myself, or where I've seen it happen in the workplace and stuff like that. And and yeah, I think a big part of it is really due to just not being aware at all like and it's it's something that I guess yeah we really need to kind of start to bring more to light and really readdress because it starts off with awareness it starts off with just actually knowing about it and knowing um you know how to um best work and support and and in, in involve that kind of inclusive environment um when you actually have these kinds of conversations and, you know, these podcasts, these trainings, these types of like one-to-ones with people, just as you kind of come across them and stuff like that, it's not, it's just very handy just to get a bit more of a sense of understanding um, and what it's like and what it means and how it portrays in the workplace, in a social setting and wherever. So um, yeah, the more we talk about it, the more we, bring up the awareness the more things can hopefully start to change and um, for the better and be more inclusive for everyone so i really do appreciate your your time here to discuss this with us thank you so much Sophia. <laughs> so thank you for coming in yeah it's been really lovely i hope it's been okay for you too <laughs> not yes, been too thrilled. Um, i just remembered i think i slightly neglected the intersectionality point which was uh, it's really important that we keep in mind like some of the presentation of neurodiversity and how we end up perceiving it and the people that display it will be heavily racialized in particular. Mm. So a very, very common, I won't even say microaggression because it is just explicit race discrimination um, and often like a misogynoir race discrimination is that black women will be referred to as aggressive. Um, mm. or, and, and that is even more so when we consider, for example, neurodiversity can mean that perhaps you're mincing your words a little bit less perhaps like all of the pleasantries and framing around like rewriting an email five times to like put it in the right wording that it will land exactly right perhaps that's a little bit more difficult when you're juggling other things mm-hmm. or whether it's neurodiversity or something else mm-hmm. and it's the benefit of the doubt that is ex- extended to people from valuable groups so someone that is in every other category of life considered part of a valuable group um or an overrepresented group a group with institutional, structural, contextual power is more likely to get the benefit of the doubt. Someone who is perhaps quiet when people feel that they should be chatty, bubbly, participating. Someone who is perhaps chatty, bubbly, participating when they're expected to be solemn, serious, formal. Someone who is perhaps formal when they're expected to be um, disarming some stakeholder. Who do we extend the benefit of the doubt to? Who in perhaps a conflict or a disagreement is perceived as a victim who should be advocated for versus who is aggressive, difficult, withdrawn, stubborn, didn't get along with others easily. They were a troublemaker. Those things will definitely show in terms of neurodiversity and particularly in terms of intersectional structures of oppression. And the microaggressions that will be um, faced by um, particularly women with neurodiverse conditions um, will often be in relation to how easy they were to manage, mm. easy. Their adjustments are seen as an inconvenience, as being a chore. And who is dehumanized already? 
you're most likely to see it along um, race-related lines. So it's really important we keep in mind intersectionality in our neurodiversity inclusion. Thank you. That's a very good, important point to to raise there. And I really appreciate you coming in and just and just sharing um, all about that. It's very important that we continue to raise this awareness and just be intentional with with all of this as well. Um, because yeah, it's <laughs> it's a it's it's a it's a battle that we'll get to, but we will get there. <laughs> we will get there. <laughs> so yes, and it's from people like you as well coming out to train us and to support us and to just help get that message across. So thank you for all that you do. Um, all the hard work is it's it's paying off. Um, and we'll, we're all going to get there very soon. So thank you so much again, Sophia. Um, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you around for the next podcast. Thank you very much. That. <laughs> Over and thank out. You. <laughs> if it's after, then congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not share it with a fundraising friend? And if you would like to give us a little like or subscribe, it really helps more fundraisers like you find us. Thank you so much. See you next time.